Father, we thank you that um, it's Friday morning, that Sabbath will be coming later today, and that we'll be starting the convention here at Eden Valley. We pray that it would be a rich blessing for every attendee, every person that comes. And this morning we also ask, Lord, that you would be with us once again as we turn to your word. Thank you for this opportunity and the freedom that we enjoy. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been spending a little time before the convention started um, looking at different aspects of Revelation. Particularly, we've been looking at Revelation 4 and 5 and how it fits into uh, the book of Revelation as a whole. And uh, we noticed that Revelation 4 and 5, some Bible students have called it the fountainhead of the entire book of Revelation. That it sets the scene for understanding the whole book. And on Wednesday evening, I guess it was, yeah, Wednesday evening, we looked at Revelation 4 and 5, and the first thing we see that John saw when he's taken up to heaven was the throne. And we noted again that there are opposing thrones in the book of Revelation. God has a throne, God's allies have thrones, Satan has a throne, Satan's allies have thrones. And that John portrays Revelation portrays the throne, rather, in Revelation as under attack, that the throne is contested territory. Ultimately, God wins. Amen? Amen. Completely. Revelation 20, 11, we read that the other day as well, where John sees the great white throne, and earth and heaven flees, and the only object in view is the throne. So the controversy ends with this clear picture, which is tremendously encouraging for us. And then we've been looking um, yesterday morning, we looked again at uh, the aspect of the sanctuary in Revelation 4 and 5, and I was suggesting that in contradiction to a majority view in Seventh-day Adventism, Seventh Adventism today, that really Revelation 4 and 5, when we compare it with Daniel 7, is really drawing our minds to the beginning of the investigative judgment. And... Um, Leslie Harding and Edwin Thiele and a lot of other Adventists from a previous generation had presented that. M newer Adventist theologians and Bible scholars have moved away from it. I think those older Bible students had a lot that we can learn from. And again, as we compare Daniel 7, Revelation 4 and 5, I think we see the beginning of the investigative judgment. And then in chapter 6, we get the evidence in the judgment. And the trumpets, again, is evidence, all historic. But the judgment opens, and then evidence is brought out through the judgment. Then last night, yesterday evening, we looked at Revelation 4 and 5, and we compared it with Revelation 12 and 13, and saw how they are mirror chapters as we look carefully at those. And so again, the great controversy theme runs throughout the entire book of Revelation. And we need to learn to see that as we read Revelation. And the most important part is that the great controversy is not out there, but it is in here. And we read that quote from the book Education, that the student, the Bible student, should learn to trace in history two opposing forces. And Ellen White does that in the book Great Controversy. But the student should also learn to see how in every act of life we are showing what side of the controversy we're on. And so, again, as we come through all this, again, we need to apply it to ourselves. So this morning, what I'd like to do is look briefly again at Revelation 4 or 5, give a quick summary of it, and then see how it compares to Revelation 19. 
and then how that brings us to the end of the judgment and what it is that wraps everything up together. As we said um, through the times that we were together, this group of individuals or this group of What's the right word? The four living creatures, the 24 elders, that group, that cluster in heaven, that I'm calling it the divine council, that group is very interested in the great controversy. Owen White tells us in The Desire of Ages that it was before that divine council that Satan first started the whole accusation against God. And so the heavenly council, they are now convinced. And what convinced them that God is worthy of worship? The cross. Now that was the point in, in the heavenly universe point of view. We read that last night where the heavenly universe was waiting for God to destroy the world. And if he did, they would have said what? Anybody remember? Amen. They would have said amen. You know, the unfallen worlds would have said amen if God had destroyed the world. Instead, God sent his son. And then, of course, as, as the nature of God is revealed in Christ and Christ reveals himself as the self-sacrificial one culminating in the cross the rest of the universe says it we're convinced the problem is we are not convinced and so Revelation is dealing with these issues as well as the historic unfoldment in different um, concrete realities, the papal system, the United States, those are all clear historic manifestations of this antagonism to God's rule. But there's also a principle at work, and that is the antagonism that exists in my heart and in your heart and in the heart of everybody else that we meet. And it's that that needs to be taken care of. So let's, with that background, with that summary, let's turn back to Revelation 4 and 5. And I want to note with you just briefly, um, in Revelation 5, there are songs, little verses, we're going to call them hymns this morning, that are sung. So in verse 9, there's the first one, where Jesus is taking the book, and the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book, and to break its seals, for you were slain. And you purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign on the earth. And then in verse 11, there's a widening circle. Now there's these angelic hosts. They're around the throne and the four living creatures and the elders. And the number of them is myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down in worship. Quite a scene, isn't it? Uh, it? It starts when the Lamb comes to the throne and takes the book, and, and then the four living creatures they begin to sing, and then the 24 elders, the four living creatures are mentioned, then the 24 elders, and they sing, and then the angels, and then all creation... 
And we're looking forward to the fulfillment of that when all creation will bow down and say, worthy is the one that is slain and worthy is the one that's on the throne. Now, we notice here in Revelation 5, toward the end are these four verses, we could call them just for our purposes this morning, four little hymns, four little aspects of song. And the way John describes it, he describes the four creatures, 24 elders, then the angels, and then creation, right? We just saw that. A number of years ago, William Shea, who um, charged the BRI for many years, wrote a paper on the comparison between Revelation 5 and Revelation 19. And he wanted to show that if you look at the whole structure of the book, Revelation 4 and 5 is mirrored by Revelation 19. It's the opposite end of a, a chiastic structure, and that's what Dr. Shea was trying to share. And when you come to Revelation 19, it's interesting, we'll get there in a moment. Again, there are four hymns, four sections of song in Revelation 19. It starts with a great multitude, and then you have the 24 elders, and then you have the four living creatures. Notice the inverse order here. Okay, so this is the other side of a mirror image, and so things are built in differently. And then instead of all creation, you have a voice that comes out of the throne. And as, as Dr. Shea was looking at these connections between Revelation 4 and 5 and Revelation 19, he came to the conclusion, and so did Dr. Strand, in his first work on, work on Revelation, that these two sections reflect one another. Now, if it's correct that Revelation 4 and 5 show the beginning of the judgment, at the beginning of the book, then this is the mirrored opposite, it would be helpful to conclude, well, then maybe this shows the conclusion of the judgment. And that's exactly what we find in Revelation 19. That in Revelation 19, we get the end of the judgment and the final word that God really is worthy to rule the universe. That's the question in the book. Is God fit, worthy to rule? How does God rule? God rules through self-sacrifice. Can you run a universe that way? Finally, in Revelation 19, the answer is decisively given, yes. There's a group of people that are ready for God to rule that way. So, um, with me so far? Yep. You are? Anybody else? Any questions? Okay, so let's go to Revelation 19. <clears throat> And as you're turning to Revelation 19, this is an outline of what we find in Revelation 19. In verses 1 and 6, we have this praise that's given. So I'm going to do this as an overview first and then come back and, and fill it out a little bit further. So in verse 1, after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, what? Oh, you could do that better. Yeah, this is a loud voice of a great multitude. It would be really interesting to, to do Revelation visually or, or uh, what's the word I want? Dramatized. Well, yeah, dramatized, where, you know, where you have a narrator, and there's someone, I heard this loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, and then you had this loud voice saying, Hallelujah! 
salvation and glory and power belong to our God. I mean, this is powerful. This is the end of the controversy. This is what we should be looking forward to. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Then we go down to verse 6. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. So there's a praise in verses 1 and 6, right? We see that. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Uh, it's kind of a bracketing of this aspect. Notice also what it says in verse 6. We'll come back to it momentarily. It says, for the Lord our God, the Almighty. I think the King James says the Lord God omnipotent. What, what's the word? Amen. He reigneth. What tense is that? Present. It's a present tense. He reigns. Now it's interesting. In the book of Revelation... Here you're coming toward the end of the book, and now it is saying God is reigning. Okay? Earlier in the book of Revelation, it doesn't say he's reigning. In Revelation 11:18, it begins to talk about when his reign is going to begin. But that's toward the end of the great controversy. Now, clearly, there's a point where God is reigning. He's sitting on his throne in heaven. But from Revelation's perspective, that reign is being questioned. And it fully comes into play when the controversy is brought to an end. So let's, uh, a little bit further, in verses 2 and 6, now there are reasons given for the praise. And in verse 2, he breaks it apart in different ways. So in the first part of verse 2, why are they giving glory to God? Why are they saying hallelujah? Verse 2, what's the first word in verse 2? True and judgments are your ways. Okay, so there's this reason given because God's judgments are true. And actually, in the original language, there's a word there which we would translate because true and judgments, excuse me, because his judgments are true and righteous. And then we see in verse um, 6, they're saying hallelujah now because the Lord God is reigning. A little bit later on in verse 2, there's another reason given for this praise. And what's that? What has he done? He has judged who? The great harlot. Right? And then in verse 7, there's another reason given for the praise there. What's the reason there? The marriage of the Lamb has come. Okay? Now, um... Uh, also in verse 2, there are actions of the woman. What has the harlot done in verse 2? She's corrupted the earth. And what has the other woman done in verse 7? She has made herself ready. Okay, you see what's happening here? There, John is creating something for us. He's bracketing this praise. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Then he's telling us why. Because God's judgments are here, matched with God reigning. And then he's telling us another reason. Because he's taken action against this woman. And here, because the marriage is ready. And now there is what the women have done. One has corrupted the earth. 
The other has made herself ready, and now there's a response to those actions. And what's the response? The last part of verse 2, God is avenging the blood of his bondservants. And in verse 8, he is giving the woman fine linen and uh, clothing, which is the righteousness of the saints. Okay. This is just to give you the big picture. I want to kind of go back and look at it. Again, the big picture here, again, these two passages are mirror. Beginning of the judgment, end of the judgment. And what we want to see this morning is what, what enables the judgment to come to an end. What is it that brings it to its fruition? So let's kind of go through a little bit more detail on these. So let's go back to verse 1. Uh, again, in verse 1, John hears something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, and they're crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. And that's a very familiar theme in the book of Revelation. Certainly in Revelation 14, we are called to give God glory. But notice this expression, the last word here, power belongs to our God. Back in Revelation chapter 4, let's turn there again. Revelation 4, in verse 11, in the first little song in the book of Revelation, the four living creatures say, or, or the second one, in verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, and what else? And power. Now just look over with me to Revelation 5, in verse 12. Worthy is the lamb that is slain to receive what? Power. So power is a very important point in the book of Revelation. It's mentioned in numerous places. It's mentioned in, in chapter 12. It's counterfeited in chapter 13. The important point for us is that the dragon has power in Revelation. How does the dragon use his power? Coercion. Force. Persecution. Okay, that's how the dragon uses his power. How does God use his power? Now here you are at the end of the book, and, and power is being ascribed to God. He's taking his power here. Um, in Revelation eleven eighteen. he takes his power and he begins to reign. How does God do that? What, how is God's power manifested? Love never, love never fails. It is power, right? And it's important for us not to think that when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, God starts to act like Satan. Because God doesn't act like Satan, ever. And it's not now when you get to the end of the book, okay, now God's going to show you who's really stronger. But God's power is manifested in self-denial and in self-sacrifice all the time. And so let's continue here. Um, verse 2, this call, because he has, his judgments are true and righteous, he has judged the great harlot, sorry, back in Revelation 19 and verse 2, pardon me, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, Revelation 19:2, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So what is God doing? He's avenging. So there's one other place in the book of Revelation where this call for 
God's people to be avenged happens. You want to know where that is? One other place. In the, the fifth seal. Revelation chapter 6. Exact same phrase. Also in, in the plagues. And we'll look at that in a minute, Steve. That's a good point. But in Revelation chapter 5, in verse, starting in verse 9, Revelation, excuse me, Revelation 6, under the fifth seal, starting in verse 9, Revelation 6, verse 9, when the, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long? How long what? How long, O Lord, holy and true? What does the King James say? Dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long do you not judge? What's the implication there? Slow to do what? To deal with sin. And God's people are like, God, what is going on? Why are you, the New American Standard says, how long do you refrain? Actually, in the original language, there's an implicit accusation. That might be too strong. But there's certainly this question, God, what is going on? Why are you allowing evil to triumph? Why does our death continue to happen? Why does evil prosper and the righteous perish? How long? How long? Well, praise the Lord. At the end of the book, it's taken care of. And, and we each want justice to take place, don't we? You know, we see horrendous situations taking place in this world. And, and certainly we want God to come and bring an end to sin and misery and suffering. But at the same time, justice needs to be done. And it needs to be seen that it is being done. And that's what's happening here in Revelation 19. There's this question. How long, Lord? Let's go back to chapter 19. Finally, God is taking the step and he is going to avenge the blood of his bondservants on her. Now this is really a fundamental problem. Because if God only wins at the end because he's stronger, that creates a dilemma for us, an ethical dilemma. God won because he's the bigger, got a bigger pulpit, he's got a bigger voice, he's got more power. But that's not what Revelation's bringing out to us. Again, the, the pivotal image in Revelation 5, where the question of how God rules, and John wants to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, this kingly image, and when he turns and he sees the kingly image, he sees the slain lamb. In other words, God rules by self-sacrifice. This is how God's government is. This is the foundation of his government, justice and mercy, kissing one another, embracing one another. But let's go back to Revelation chapter 16 to kind of also flesh out this aspect here of God's judgment. Revelation 16, what do we find in that chapter? Plagues, right? And um, it's interesting when you read through the 
seals. You have six seals. And then the seventh seal is separated by chapter 7. comes in the beginning of chapter 8. When you read through the trumpets, you have six trumpets. And then the seventh trumpet is separated and comes at the end of chapter 11. And so under the plagues as well, there's kind of a grouping of the first six plagues, and then you have the seventh. And what's interesting is, if you look at the, the passage, and um, if you look at verses 2 through 4 in Revelation 16, you have the first three bowls of the plagues, the first three vials of the seven last plagues. We're together on that? And then when you go to um, verse 8, from verse 8 and onward, then you find the outpouring of the last three plagues. And then in the middle, starting in verse 5 to verse 7, is another little hymn section where there are these voices saying. So let's look at those. Verse 5. And I heard the angel of the water saying... Righteous are you. That's the real question. Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One. Why? Because you're judging. So the universe is waiting. Okay, God, we're clear in the great controversy. We've seen it at the cross. We want you to act. And when God does act, they say, you're righteous. This is what we've been waiting for. So that's in the first part there. Righteous are you. Now, let's skip um, verse 6 for a moment, and let's look at verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So what do we find? In verse 5, the angel of the water says, God's righteous, he's true. Why? Because he's judging. In verse 7, the altar says, and don't ask me what that means. Um, John lets horns of the altar and the altar speak. Remember, Revelation doesn't mean what it says. It means what? It means what it means. Okay, So the altar is not actually speaking. It's metaphorical. Just like Abel's blood was crying out from the earth. Verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So we see verse 5 and verse 7 talking about the truthfulness of God's judgments. Why are God's judgments true? What does verse 6 say? Exactly. What does verse 6 say? They're bloodthirsty and they get blood. So they have been wanting to kill God's people and then they get, in return, what they have given out. Now, there's God's activity in this. This is not simply the law of karma taking place here. But notice how John's phrasing it. Judgment. So when we go to Revelation 19, and really, if you weren't a Christian, you would think this might be pretty horrific. That all these beings in heaven are like, you know, whooping and jumping up and down. And hallelujah, God's giving it to the whore, to Babylon. That's a bit not politically correct. Um, you know, this isn't a Broncos football game where they're defeating the Seahawks and people are excited. This is Babylon being destroyed. This is people's lives being judged. 
and yet the heavenly universe is going. They have no shame, no hesitancy in saying, praise God, you're finally doing this. Because the character of evil has been made manifest. What is the action of this woman, Babylon? What's her action? What does she do? What has she been doing? She sheds blood. She's corrupting the earth. She's the fornicator. She's the source of all evil in the world. Oppression, poverty, you know, um, racism. Where does it come from? This is the root. And again, the root's not necessarily out there. It's in my heart. But finally, it's taken care of. Babylon is judged. And the universe can say, praise God. But there's another woman here that we need to look at because this woman's actions really relate to us. So we've seen so far there's this praise and there's the reason for the praise and there's the action of Babylon, the harlot, but there's also the action of the other woman, the bride of Christ, the other church. So let's look at that in verse 7. Revelation 19.7. And really, we're coming to the question here, why is it how it's taking so long? Why is God refraining? A question that's asked under the fifth seal. And as I mentioned earlier this morning, at the last part of verse 6, it tells us that the Lord God, the omnipotent, reigneth. He is now reigning. And so if we're reading through Revelation, and we're reading Revelation over and over again, and we're beginning to ask questions, well, why does it take so long? Well, the first image of the throne, the uh, first visible image of the throne is in chapter 4, and you have this, all this unfolding series of events, the evidence and the judgment, and all these issues, and you almost come to the end, but then you go back to the beginning, and finally now we're coming to a point in the story, in the narrative, as John's unfolding it for us, that God is reigning. What has made the difference? Verse 7. Let's rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. Why? What's the reason? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And what else? His wife, his bride, has made herself ready. Where one woman is corrupting the earth, the other woman is making herself ready. How do we make ourselves ready? Bath and whatever. So there's a cleansing. Uh -huh. There's a becoming ready. And that the emphasis here is on the bride has made herself by herself ready. The original language emphasizes the action of the woman in the preparation process. Now, let's be very careful here. Salvation is by what? Grace. By grace through faith, 100%. We can contribute nothing to our salvation. At the same time, God does nothing without our cooperation in our individual response. God's done something for the whole world when he gave Christ. He doesn't condemn the world. He sent his son into the world. God has taken all these steps for us, and he draws us to himself but here's a point in the story where the emphasis is on our response. And this has been the issue in Revelation. John is trying to call his people out of the culture of the world, whether it's first century, 
5th century, 12th century, 21st century, call us out of the culture of the world and be fully God's. The bride has finally made herself ready. She's come to the point where she's making a choice fully and completely. She is, God is worthy of being the one on the throne. And the two women in Revelation represent two choices that we are faced with. Do we follow Babylon and the misunderstanding of God and the desire to manipulate people and the desire to, to use force and power in a wrong way? Or do we learn the principles of the kingdom and we follow God's principles? So much so that really in every act of life we can show that we're on God's side. Wouldn't that be totally exciting? Yeah. Totally. Totally. So let's continue a little bit further here. The bride has made herself ready. Verse 8. Someone read verse 8 for us. Now verse 8 is really an explication, explication a expansion of verses 6 and 7 for us. And what is given to the woman? Well, that's our usual answer. What's given to the woman is fine linen. Let's look at the verse a little more carefully. What's given to the woman? Okay, that's what the fine living is. But what does the verse say? It was granted to her. What's given to her? It's given to her. It's granted to her the opportunity to be clothed with this fine linen. Now, we need to understand that John here in the book of Revelation is not discussing the book of Romans. Okay? John's not emphasizing here um, the experience of righteousness by faith in the sense that God's giving us this gift of righteousness, which he does. Don't misunderstand that. Revelation 7 clearly describes that the saints are given white robes. So that's a truth. But here in Revelation 19, John is emphasizing something else. It is given to her to clothe herself with fine linen. The opportunity is there. The choice is there. The bride has made herself ready. Why? She's choosing. I want to be clothed with the white raiment, which of course is a gift as well. But the emphasis in the verse is the opportunity she has. And what does she do with this opportunity? She takes it. She clothes herself. And she says, yes, I want to be on God's side in the great controversy. There's a um, commentator who, on this verse, said these words. He said, it's only when the church has the will to be totally faithful to God that God can be proclaimed sovereign. And that's this guy's view of Revelation 19. That it is only when the church has the will to be totally faithful to God that God can be proclaimed sovereign. And that's what you see in this passage of Revelation. That does not mean that God is uh, sitting on his throne now. It doesn't mean that God is not the ruler of the universe. He is. But in Revelation's telling of the story, and the way John unfolds it for us, the reason for the delay is we need to make a decision. And um, it's interesting, I just got an email today, yesterday, from a gentleman who's written a new book who I don't know anything about the book other than he, his little blurb was 
The idea that there's a delay and it's partially and it's related to God's choice is that's total heresy. That's his new book. And uh, so you may want to read his book and find out what he says. Maybe not. But here in the book of Revelation, John is emphasizing for us that the judgment comes to an end. God reigns. The heavenly universe has already decided on it. But there comes a point when the bride is decided as well. She makes herself ready. She seizes the opportunity to clothe herself with the righteousness of Christ. Now, one more thing I just want to bring out here. Let's go back to verse 5, Revelation 19, 5. And a voice came from the throne saying, Praise to our God, all you as bondservants, <clears throat> you who fear him, the small and the great. As I said earlier, there are all sorts of voices coming from different places in Revelation. The altar speaks, we saw that in chapter 16, the voice from horns of the altar. So voices come from different places. But notice what this says, a voice comes, a voice came from the throne. How should we understand that? Well, there's two ways. There's a couple of ways, probably. What? Okay, well, if it was God speaking, it would be odd for God to say, give praise to our God. So that really wouldn't fit. It's possible that John's just trying to make the throne communicate for us, again, in metaphoric language. But there's another possibility. Who shares the throne with God? Jesus shares the throne with God. And ultimately, we will share that throne as well. It's possible that this voice is the voice of Jesus, who also is saying, you know, I believe God's actions are right as well. Give praise to our God, all you, his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the what? That expression is used several times in, book, in the book of Revelation, many places. There is no one so small that they will be ignored in the judgment. And there is no one so great that they can ignore the judgment. Small and great, all of us are called to give praise to our God. And if this is the voice of Christ, perhaps he too is saying here in agreement, I agree with God's plan. We know what it says in Desire of Ages, page 25, that Christ was treated how? As we deserve, he suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life that was his. Um, Desire of Ages, page 762, brings these thoughts out. The law requires righteousness, righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character, and this man has not to give. Have you gotten that through your head? That you don't have that to give. And whenever you fail, you should just go, yeah, you know, I just don't have that to give. I don't have righteousness inherently. We cannot meet the claims of God's law, but Christ coming to the earth as a man lived a holy life, developed a perfect character, and he offers as a free gift to all who receive them. The bride took the opportunity that was presented before her. She receives the free gift. Christ's life stands in place of her life. 
bringing freedom, remission from the sins that are past. And then continuing in Desire of Ages 762, more than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. I like that word, imbue. What does it mean to imbue? Hmm? Put you inside, fills it. So, you know, it's almost like dying something. And you're totally saturated with it. What does God want to do? He wants to imbue us with the attributes of God. He builds up the divine character after the fashion of the, excuse me, the human character after the fashion of the divine character. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. And that's what, that's what God wants to see take place. And finally, toward the end of the book of Revelation, now it's not entirely the end. There's still the final battle and the thousand years and the destruction of the wicked take place. But really, the issues are settled at this point in time. And what's the key to deciding point? What tips the scale? The bride makes herself ready. So in Revelation, there are these two women. And the judgment really focuses on these two women. Who, which way do they act? Who gets what they deserve? Well, in the end, we all get what we deserve. In fact, as C.S. Lewis said, we all get what we want in the end. You know, if we want God, we get God. If we don't want God, we get that as well. So as we think of the book of Revelation, it's important for us, it's very important for us, to understand the historicist interpretation, to understand where we are in prophecy. But at the same time, it's as important that we understand the big theme in Revelation, which is the great controversy. Is God really worthy to rule your life and mine? That's the question before us today. I pray that his love, his compassion, his grace would encourage us, constrain us, impel us to be ready for the wedding whenever that comes. Let's kneel together as we pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you that you are just and true and righteous and that we have complete confidence in your wisdom and in your guidance. Lord, we look forward to the day when we can join this song in Revelation chapter 19 and cry out, Hallelujah, because evil has come to an end. The Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Father, we want you to reign into our life today. We want you to reign in this universe. Teach us, Father, how we can be on your side in the great controversy. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.